morning. We had a lovely time last night. The music was phenomenal and I think gave an indication of why uh, Timothy's gift makes such an impact where they go because um, there's 100% and there's 110 and then, you know, as in Spinal Tap, there's 11 and that's where they go. If you didn't get that, you know, you can go away now. Uh, but in any case, I, it, it is a privilege for me to be here. Um, you know, in life, you sometimes have a convergence with people in odd places. And I first met Melissa at the Wild Goose Festival, uh, which I've been part of since it started. I think we're on our fifth or sixth this year. And uh, I saw a little bit of what was going on last night. They did a performance for us there of what they carried into the prison ministry with them. And that was my introduction to what my old friend Ron, who I go back with 25 years or so, uh, was doing out there with the, this prison ministry. And then I had the privilege of, of accompanying one of the trips uh, as someone who went in there to minister along with the musicians when we served communion and we talked to people. And last night I talked about the impact that that had on my life and this idea that the men standing there in gray or blue suits and me, the difference is that my clothes cover up a lie because we are all convicted felons in the sense that we all live a lie. Nobody looking at me here today, with the possible exception of Ron Miller, is actually a good person. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that there's two of us. You know, I lied to Jeannie, my, my wife, when uh, we were young people, and, I was telling her as a teenager, having sex with her, that she wouldn't get pregnant. Um, medical science cannot be contradicted by teenagers or the Koch brothers uh, who tell us there's no climate change. So facts are facts, but the thing is, as a teen father, I was really uh, a jerk. I would use another word, but I'm being careful because this is a church. But. The growth curve for me through years of being this, this, this guy who was, um, had grown up in this Calvinist home where men are supposed to be in charge of the world and you throw your weight around and you boss women and you slap children and you do it under the guise of being the head of a home. The path from that to today when my full-time job is not being a writer, it's a caregiver for three of my five grandchildren who've for me, the greatest gift in life happened to live literally across the street from me and are the, the son and the two little daughters, age seven and two, and then the son is, is uh, five. These are the children of my son who was a Marine who fought in Afghanistan and Iraq and came back in one piece. And if that's not a basis for Thanksgiving for the rest of your life and everything else after that is simply a footnote, then I don't know what is. So, Essentially, I may look like a 63-year-old old white guy standing up here trying to follow these great children who were really what the service was about, but although I'm disguised as that, I'm really a young mom now uh, because that is the part of my life. Talking about gender issues, I'm actually a young mother. Um, so not only, not only is it a gender confusion, I'm claiming now that I am 23 and have these little kids. Um, but essentially what I'm trying to say is, is that the arc of life, the arc of life that we all go through is a learning curve. And where it ties into what I talked about 
uh, in terms of, uh, of the impact that visiting these, these prisoners had with me was the realization that the only difference between them and me is that they got caught. And so they are wearing a uniform that tells you of their greatest failing. I happen to go to a Greek Orthodox church and part of our liturgical service uh, through the year is, a, is the act of penance and confession, where really it's just free psychotherapy that was invented 2,000 years ago. But nevertheless, you get to tell someone a little bit about who you really are. But of course, you never really say everything. And, uh, and you go away feeling a little better because you were honest. But if you were standing completely stripped naked, and people could really see inside a whole lifetime of mistakes, of errors, of meanness, of unkindness, of being a real son of a bitch. And they could see you who you really are and what you carry with you on your back. Then you would be in the position of the people wearing the gray and blue suits who are, quote, convicted felons because they got caught doing what you either have thought about or got away with or whatever it may be. So that's what we kind of talked about last night. Today, I'd like to turn to a slightly different subject and then uh, take a couple questions from you guys because I like a, a little Q&A. Um, and it is this. In this journey of life, in terms of where I'm at right now with these little grandchildren, my three youngest of five grandchildren and three grown kids and this writing career, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and a, a long up and down marriage that I we have struggled through and, and triumphed and fallen and gotten back up and all the rest of it. My perspective on the country that I live in and the issues that confront us both personally and nationally uh, today is this. And that is one of the thoughts that I've been having recurringly recently and I've been working on as a book project, which I'm not here to sell you because it's not published, but it's been in my mind for the last three years of work as I wrap this project up is that the essential problem with our lives in the United States of America circa 2016, right now, this minute, both personally, individually, and nationally, the sickness of our society, which we have within us individually and marks our whole culture, is we have the wrong idea of success. That is essentially the bottom line. We have given up on the arc of life and the art of life and instead see ourselves not only as a consumerist culture, but one where all the measures of success are exactly the wrong idea. And I'll give you some examples. We see education these days in terms of preparing to compete in the global economy rather than in terms of feeding the soul of a young individual and opening the beauty of what it means to be a human being to that young girl or boy. We do to life what the Roman Catholic Church used to be accused of doing to sexuality, when they said the only excuse for sex, as it were, even between married people, men and women, was procreation and having a child. Sex in itself was simply a means to an end, an ultimate utilitarian view of human sexuality. Then in itself, it wasn't something good and wonderful. It was only good and wonderful because it led to a greater purpose. Now, we see Christianity that way. There's a whole Christian music industry built around the idea that Christian music's purpose is not to actually be good music for its own sake, but to reach people for the Lord. We see our politicians doing this all the time. Whatever political persuasion you hold, 
They never look at you in the face as an individual who it was a pleasure to meet because you're standing there. If they weren't running for office, when, they're, when they get elected, I don't see any of these guys out in the street kissing anybody's babies after that. They were using us to take the next step in the same way that I use my literary agent to get me my next deal, in the same way that we earn our living, in the same way that often we're kind to people because we want them to be kind to us. What I would like to, to propose here this morning is that this model of personal, individual, or national success is poison because we are always on our way to the next step instead of not only seeing where we are this minute, but not realizing something that I find is very tragic, and that is the intrinsic value of life itself, the purpose of which is only one thing, and that is to mirror the first chapters of Genesis where God looks at creation and says it's good, period. Our whole and only existence here is to second that comment. Your life is only worth as much as your ability to take the comment that it is good and say, me too. And so for me, my life these days boils down to picking Nora up in the morning when her parents go to work and having the privilege of being with a two-year-old at an age of life when I'm no longer just striving and seeing things in utilitarian terms, as I was very much when I was raising my own children. But actually seeing the moment for what it is. That there is no better thing. That this isn't a step to something else. That I'm not enjoying Nora to teach her how to grow into being a successful young woman who's going to have a career and tear the world up. The purpose of my time with Nora is that that moment itself is more valuable than anything I could be doing at all, anywhere. The purpose of standing in front of a great work of art or, or re-listening to an album that you love. The purpose, of, the purpose of falling in love. The purpose of sex. The purpose of having a child is not to lead to another step. These are not stepping stones. They are gifts in and of themselves. And when we lose sight of that, we become, we become what this country has become. And I'm sorry if this is a little political, but tough, you know what. <laughs> I would have filled in the blanket, wild goose. Come down there, you'll hear how I really talk. But here we are in a, in a sanctuary. But let me tell you exactly what it means. It means that we're in a period of history where we mistake an entertainer and billionaire for someone perhaps qualified to be president simply because in terms of America's measure of success, he's successful. But I'm not picking only on Donald Trump, although I am. <laughs> I'm also picking on people who think that the purpose of life, if they have any interest in computer technology, is to head to Silicon Valley and do a startup and become one of these swaggering Visigoths out there who are going to recreate the human race in their own image through technology, not because they love mathematics in and of itself. I know mathematicians and scientists who are that not because it's a step for them to something else. They are that because they are in love with the mystery and philosophy of numbers. We have to start examining our lives outside of this culture, outside of this Christian world, outside of religion, 
and stop measuring what we do in utilitarian terms and only begin to see what is actually in front of our faces and be able to ascertain what is good that we have and cling to it like a life raft. And so the purpose of education is not to get a job. It's because knowledge is beautiful and a brain is a good thing. The reason to go to college is not to graduate and find work in that field, but to study something that you are actually interested in as a vocation or nothing at all. The reason that we have careers at all is because we love them as vocations and or we use them practically to fund those things that we know are where we really live. And we need to be honest about that. The purpose of art is not to sell Jesus or to get people to love God or to sell a piece of art or a painting or get hired to make a film or whatever it may be. The purpose of art is that the intrinsic worth of beauty needs no argument. There's, it, this is not a step. This is, the, this is the reason we're here, is to be moved by that piece of music, to be moved by that poem, to be moved by the unconditional trust we read in a child's face where we have put in the hours to earn that trust and love, and to realize that for once, we're being seen as we wish we could see ourselves, which is the greatest gift a child can give you, by the way. So I don't want to just leave you with this thought today and uh, throw the floor open for a couple of quick discussions uh, and take a question or two if you have some um, and, and see where that goes for a couple of minutes before we wrap it up. But just let me leave you with my little punchline one more time. What this is about is looking at life as a series of experiences of beauty that have intrinsic worth in and of themselves and are not a step to the next utilitarian accomplishment in our false sense of what success is. So for the titans of Silicon Valley, who we're told how many billions of dollars they earn, or the entertainers who are stars, or Donald Trump running for office, or any of these other folks, the real question is not how much money did they make, have they reshaped the internet, have they come up with an app that everybody is now uh, catching on to and using, are they a successful preacher? Do they have a big entertainment name? The question is much more simple. For them personally, are they finding things in their life that are good with intrinsic worth in themselves? And does that mirror in the fact that they are earning the unconditional love and trust of the people closest to them who know them best? And the only real mirror you have is not the one in your bathroom or your front hall. It's the eyes of the people who know you best. What you read there is the truth about yourself. And unless you're seeing beauty reflected back at you, you are a failure. And if you are seeing unconditional love and trust, you are a success. And I don't give a whatever you have in the bank or whether your last album sold or whether you're going to invent an app. It's who we are, not what we do that counts. So thank you very much, and I'll take a couple questions. Just throw your hand up, and I'll repeat them because we're not set up for this. But think of something and ask it so I don't feel like an idiot. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Go ahead. Do I have advice on how to convey that message to an 8 or 10-year-old? I do, actually. And that is what we, what we need to do 
is be present in their lives. And you have to make your own choices about what's worth it to you. You know, a lot of the time when we say, well, we can't take the time because we're off earning a job, a living, maybe we have the wrong job and we're chasing the wrong kind of success. So when we talk about eight and 10 year olds, there's no way to tell anybody this. It's to share the experience. So I'll just give you one illustration uh, from my own life. I don't talk to my grandchildren about art because I'm interested in art. I'm a painter as well as a writer. And I don't say, oh, art is so important, you've got to learn to love art. I make their day at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston with me every probably six weeks. One of the best days of their life every time we go there. Because I follow them around and I let them look at their favorite things and I buy them exactly what they want in the cafeteria. And to them, going to an art museum is not an obligation that you're being taught. It is the, it is the enjoyment with your grandfather of a moment that already is a memory, if you want to put it that way, that I know they will have the rest of their life. So when they stand in front of singer sergeants, Boyt daughters, sometime when they're my age and remember their old granddad who first stood in that painting, they won't remember a lecture. They will remember the fact they were sitting on my lap with their cheek against mine, where I could sense their warmth and heartbeat and were being given the tenderness and love that goes with experiences of beauty. We're not standing in front of the ocean and being lectured on God's creation. We simply are going out there and I'm teaching my little grandson how to body surf next to me. And he will remember that. That's far more important than anything I could say. And because I'm doing that, I'm not on some fancy book tour. And because I'm doing that, I'm making choices in time and, and investment in him. So kids don't need to be taught anything. What they need to do is share experiences of unconditional love and beauty with us as equals, not kids who are being taught as human beings. We are all children who are discovering the wonder of what it means to be alive together. That's how you teach. Yes, right here. How do you um, apply the message that you're giving today um, for failing marriages? Repeat it a little louder, I couldn't How do you apply your message today for failing marriages or uh, I guess I could say broken marriages. For failing marriages and broken marriages. How do you apply what I'm saying today? <clears throat> Our lives are all failing and broken. So I happen to be married to Jeannie for 45 years. Okay. On the outside, this is me wearing this disguise. Remember I talked about the men in the gray suits they are wearing a real uniform? If you had been there in some of our fights, and I don't care if this is a church or not, you would just say, the person standing in front of you is the biggest asshole in the world. So this marriage is not a triumph. There is no triumph here. My wife and I are simply survivors of our own human brokenness. And some people are lucky and survive together, and other people are unlucky. It is the luck of the draw. There is no virtue standing here. There is no handbook to read. There is simply finding grace in the brokenness. And that includes starting over again when we walk away from the brokenness and have completely screwed it up. And I have so many areas in my life that are like that, that it is, it is uh, soul-destroying. So it isn't a question of, oh, this life came together and worked because they are married or not married or have children or they on speaking terms with their teenagers, whatever it means. These guys aren't. We are all finding the beauty in the brokenness. We are all looking at it through a filter. The question is, what are we looking for? 
You either believe in second chances and third chances and fourth chances for yourself or you do not. And so essentially, you know, we need to be looking for what we say theoretically we believe about God, which is unconditional grace and love, but that we do not offer our own failures. So there's no silver bullet here, but there is a destination, and it all depends on what your target is. If we're measuring success in this utilitarian form, then everything will stay a failure because even the successes are crap. Because the whole goal was wrong. You don't want to be Donald Trump. You don't want to be the founder of Google. You want to be the person that Lucy will tell you showed you this painting. Even though he was a crap father to his own daughter. That's me I'm talking about. You want to be the person who has repaired something of the brokenness and salvaged the wreckage for yourself and those around you. That's our aim. And we don't do it because that'll make God love us or we're going to burn in hell if we don't. We do it because it has intrinsic value. You and I are human beings. And the very capacity to see beauty is an indication of eternity. That is the meaning of life. It isn't any higher spiritual call. The higher call is to open our eyes and to see the beauty around us even in the brokenness. And make that our aim, to create the conditions where that is possible. And that's not some fairy, fairy, artsy-fartsy idea. This comes down to practically sitting with Nora at two years old and reading her the same book 20 times in a row. Because she likes this book. And reading it with feeling and depth. Because for her, she's experiencing literature. And so I try to give her the reading that I would give as if I was on a stage. And yes, it's Dr. Dan the Bandage Man. <laughs> but I'm serious about it. This isn't like, oh, kid stuff. This is her life. That's her moment. So whether we're broken or we're salvaging a relationship or the relationship's gone and we're salvaging a relationship with a child or whatever it may be, we can still invest those individual moments with the power of grace that we may not possess, but we have to learn to be good actors so that we pass on something better than we ourselves have found when we fuck up. Sorry, I said it. <laughs> so on that note, I think the time has come. Thank you. Thank you. We're all good here. Thanks. Okay, well, I thought that last line was a good one to end on. I mean, I am a writer, and that's the end of this novel. When we, we got time for a couple more questions. Okay, I'll try not. Was that the one you said I could have? That was the one. Okay, that's it. Okay, mom. <laughs> so let's have another question. Right here. It's okay. Oh, thank you. When was your epiphany? Because sometimes I'll hear such powerful things here and other places, but I'll go home and I'll fall back into routines that I don't want to fall into. They're not necessarily bad by sure. you know, the norm, but how, what was your epiphany? What really yeah. turned your heart towards what the real living is? I, I don't think I had an epiphany, but I've had a series of gifts. And really, I mean, I don't want to sound like a broken record, and I am in this grandparent phase, but they've all come through relationships with my children and grandchildren. Let me start with my daughter, Jessica, 
who is now 45, always the age that I was when I got Jeannie pregnant, whatever it was when I was 17 and 18, so I can keep track of that. And Jessica and I, and I are now genuinely best friends. So she lives in Brussels and she works there and with her husband and two children, and we Skype all the time and so forth and so on. The, the grace I learned from her forgiving this crap teenage father taught me a lot more than I ever learned from, that she learned from me, let alone what I've learned from, quote, life or reading or the Bible or a sermon. I have just been fortunate to be forgiven occasionally and, and been able to move on. And I find the same thing uh, in daily experiences of life taking care of these grandchildren, but I also find that in art, uh, whether it's painting or writing or going to somebody's concert. You know, the way I sort of phrase faith is that I think, you know, I'm with you. This is why I've written this book called Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God. It's a deliberate contradiction in terms because I don't believe in these simple labels because we're all of these people. So I've never met a gay person, I've never met a straight person, I've never met a black person or a white person or a Jew or a Gentile or an Arab or a Muslim or an American. I've only met conflicted paradoxes like me, whose life is a journey and they were different people at different points. So I think the way we stick with it, if you want to put it that way, is not look for a series of epiphanies or silver bullets that change anything, but just recognize that the goal is to appreciate the unconditional giving and receiving of love, combined with this sense of the intrinsic worth of the actual experience of beauty itself. And don't confuse that with an argument about aesthetics, like what's a good song or what's a beautiful painting. That's different. I'm saying whatever that is to you, to be open to that experience. And the same thing with nature. So remaining dedicated to being open to those experiences doesn't mean we have them, but it means we've got our ears and eyes tuned and our hearts open when they arrive serendipitously because these are all matters of grace. The more you grasp it, the farther it will go away from you. So you can't sit down to write a bestseller. What you can do is write the line you're working on now to the best of your ability. That's it. You cannot, there are no silver bullets for long marriages or being a good parent. There is just two kinds of people. You learn as you go or you don't learn as you go. And so next time around, you don't make exactly the same mistakes, whether it's a small thing or a big thing. It's this incremental journey, but toward a destination. And that destination is not an epiphany. It's being open to the experience of beauty in every area of life. You know, if we had an aesthetic interpretation of life instead of a religious moral one, we would be so much better off. The real issue in life is just one question. Is it beautiful? And that applies to politics. That applies to looking at a political debate. Are these people sharing a beautiful moment together even in opposition? You know, my father debated Bishop Pike, and my dad was an evangelical fundamentalist Christian. Bishop Pike was a liberal. They disagreed vehemently. And after the debate, they became friends. Because my father, whatever his theology that I would agree or disagree with now, Look for the human in people. And treated Bishop Pike that way. And did not come back with the smartest answer in a debate situation, but the one that would leave them friends at the end. And that was my dad's idea of winning a discussion. Because he was looking for the intrinsic beauty in a relationship, even in an adversarial situation. Now that is, that is hard to do. 
But when the bottom line is experiencing the beauty of a moment, you have a whole different way. You even become a little less impatient and speak. There's something I know about impatience. Because you begin to look at the moment in a totally different way. You're standing in line at an airport. They have once again screwed your flight up. Now they want to change you $75 for changing their own mistake. But the lady standing in front of you who looks tired would rather be home with her child or grandchild. So you do not say what is on your mind. You say, how is your day going? And you mean it. And you have redeemed that flight. And even if you sit in that airport all night, you've done something with that moment which puts your own life back on track as seeking beauty instead of ugliness. As if somehow you were on an in-between thing in a flight and the point was to get to Albuquerque, New Mexico where the speaking engagement was or whatever it might be or the vacation. No. You have a moment standing in front of that person. That's the moment you're there for. And the way I sum it up is that in my own life there's the on-stage presence, the world we live in, and then there's those off-stage voices like choruses in an opera. And you can't quite sense where they're coming from, but they are there. And those are the reminders to seize from the wreckage of our lives, whether it's a canceled flight or a broken marriage. The restoration that comes not because of some grand plan, but because you will treat the next 10 minutes as a gift. Take a deep breath and live in that moment. And I think that's uh, seven minutes in and used and a good place to end. Thanks.